All right, if you take your Bible, turn over to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 today. So we continue our study in that book. And um, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that very few people want to be preaching on, and that's Genesis 6, 1 through 4. If you invited a guest to come here, I can guarantee you they would not choose that passage of Scripture, but because we are committed to the whole counsel of God, we're going to make sure that we cover everything in its entirety in the Bible. So it's important that we look at these things and wrestle with them, even if they are difficult passages of Scripture. Genesis chapter 6, and let's pray before we hope in God's word together. Father, I pray today that my words will be clear. These are some difficult passages, especially at the beginning of this chapter. And Lord, may we glean from it what you want us to learn today. We pray that you would just help us to have open hearts, open minds. Lord, that whatever you speak to us about, that we would respond, that we would be your obedient servants today, that we'd sense your spirit as it speaks to us and respond accordingly. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart." So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. So when we go to work and we work for eight hours or whatever amount of time that we work, whether we're hourly or salary, we get paid a wage. We get paid what we deserve because we worked for it. When we're in a sports competition or an academic competition and we win that competition, we get a prize because we've run the race or we've done what's necessary to win. But then also, we see people who, through academics and through longevity of service or volunteering for something, you receive an award for something because you've been faithful. But if you don't work, you don't get a wage. If you don't, you know, win the competition, you don't get a prize. And all those things, even of an award, you have to earn and work. But if those things were given to you, even though you didn't deserve them, that's what God calls unmerited favor or grace. And that's what we see throughout this entire chapter in the story of Noah, as well as we get into that, is the grace of God when we stand alone for him. We, like the people who lived in Adam and Noah's time, see that God's grace is given even when we don't deserve it. Abraham Lincoln, in a speech in 1863, said this, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. 
We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom or virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. That fits really well with the culture we're in today, right? We're in the same situation as Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the Civil War, trying to uh, call on God and to recognize him as the grace that's been poured out on this country. Well, Abraham Lincoln, like Noah, knew how to stand alone in the gap. He knew how to stand the gap because he faced tremendous opposition with violence and depravity all around him. And as the world continues to dive more deeply into sin, as we look at chapter 6 of Genesis, maybe see how important it is for Noah to stand the gap and be called a preacher of righteousness. Even though he would preach and warn people, no one but his family would listen to the warnings from God. Some theological themes we've seen so far in the book of Genesis, of course, is his creation. We see after that the depravity of man, original sin, God's care and welfare of humanity, and then the worshipful response of his creation, both individually and corporately, that receive and recognize God's attention and personal care. We're just going to just talk for a moment about chapter 5. Chapter 5 is kind of the interlude. It gives you the lineage from Adam to Noah. But we'll point out a couple things as we look at chapter 5 very quickly. This is the development of the human race. You'll notice in there the, the man who lived the longest, Methuselah. 969 years, at least that's the longest one recorded that we know about. Um, he lived that long. And uh, Noah had three sons by the time he was 500 years of age. So people aged much slower even as they lived longer. There was a massive population growth as a result of people living longer. Men had many wives, and so they had many children. It's interesting that Satan's lie did not come true in Genesis 3-4 when he tempted Eve to sin. He said, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. We know that Adam died spiritually immediately when he took the first bite of the fruit that was given to him by Eve. But it wasn't until Genesis 5-5, when he was 930 years of age, that he died the physical death. So the serpent was obviously the liar there. Notice an interesting statement about a man named Enoch. You might be familiar, Enoch and Elijah, the only two men in the Bible that we see who did not die a natural death. And God took them to heaven. It says in verse 21, 24 of Genesis 5, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And in verse 24 is interesting. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Some rabbis and others have speculated what happened here. And, you know, Enoch was a farmer. He had a vast amount of land. And it's thought that maybe he would meet with God at dusk out in the far edge of the 
the acreage that he had, and he would meet there with them and have a conversation. And the idea was thought by some rabbis that he was out there on the edge of the field one night, and he finally finished the conversation with God and said, well, God, it's time for me to go home. And God said, you know what, Enoch? You're closer to home with me than you are to your house. Let me take you home. We don't know exactly what happened, but Enoch left this world, and God took him to be with him. What an amazing story. Well, this brings us to today's story in Genesis 6 about Noah. Noah was Enoch's great-grandson, and he as well walked with God. The first thing you see on your outline is the spread of sin. The spread of sin. And we see the moral depravities as described in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. It said, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So I encourage you to listen closely as we try to talk about what this means. Um, I've had plenty of classes and sat under different preachers and even theologians. They don't come down on any particular argument for what these verses say. It's a head scratcher. It's one of those things, if you really want to know, you're going to have to ask God when you get to heaven. That's what it really amounts to. But here's four arguments, four arguments. You could write these down if you want and do more study. First of all, one thought is that the sons of God, in verse 2, that saw the daughters of men were attractive. These were the sons of Seth, married the daughters of Cain. Seth was, you know, more righteous and followed after God, and it's thought that Cain was not as interested in doing that. And so righteous men marrying unrighteous women. Very unlikely. There's not any real evidence that this is true. Another thought about this is human kings wanting to build a harem. Human kings wanting to build a harem. You see, back in those days, all the way up even to the Roman Empire, and when Jesus was alive, many rulers were thought to be divine or half-divine or children of the pantheon of gods or smaller gods, demigods, they would call them. And maybe these folks were the ones who uh, were procreating and allowing the world to be populated so they could develop what would be later known as harems. But again, we don't know for sure. The third idea is fallen angels who indwelt male bodies. These men were possibly demon-possessed, but what could be fallen angels that took the form of human beings as well. In Daniel 10.13, they point to this, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. This is an angel talking to Daniel Talking about spiritual warfare, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. The idea is that a prince of Persia could have been a fallen angel taking on a human form. And so the idea is that possibly in this 6, 1 through 4, it could be that as well. In Jude chapter 1, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority... 
In other words, they were fallen angels. They were told they were going to be cast down to earth and then eventually would uh, be put into hell where they would suffer eternal punishment. It says in Jude 6, there are the angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So the idea there is that the, these angels may have left their state of being uh, controlled to a certain area of the country and the world that they lived in, or even hell itself, and came out and fulfilled what's happening in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. You see in verse 6 there, the phrase, angels did not stay within their position of authority. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty 30, though, the angels could not marry. But John MacArthur points out that possibly they could procreate, even though they do not marry. So it could be that these angels inhabited through demon possession these, these men. And lastly, Wayne Gruden brings this point up, human men. These were just merely human men described in this way. And he points to 2 Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, talking about these men, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. So he's saying these men in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 could have been human men, known with their renown, known for being heroes or mighty men. And so many Jewish rabbis and, and even those that, that look at this, Wayne Gruden talks about the writers in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, the one that he was writing to, wouldn't have the idea that these were fallen angels, but these were men who lived during the time of the flood. And again, we're not 100% sure. But in the context here, when he moves on to Sodom and Gomorrah, he equates these men with those people, those humans that were there performing that immorality. Very complicated. But notice in verse 4 of Genesis 6, Moses, the writer, calls them, these were mighty men who are of old, the men of renown. Then to add to the controversy of all that, some believe the Nephilim were the giants. You know, Goliath and his brothers and others. And uh, the Nephilim means fallen or giant. It's a name used of people before the flood and after. But we know that the offspring here in verse 4 didn't survive the flood because only eight people did, Noah and his wife, and his three sons and their wives. So these men were described as men of might, renown, or heroes, and they died just like others in the human race. They were not a special species, as some have said. So regardless of what the answer really is to these first four verses, whether we can understand them or not, one thing we know is that God's judgment will not be hindered. No giant, no deity, no human being has any power against God and his sovereignty. And when he decides to judge, he will judge. So we move on to general depravity. He talked about the moral depravity, but now the general sin. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man 
was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Wickedness was great. It was running rampant. It was growing at an exponential rate since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And the intention of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually. It means people were continually evil from the time of their birth and they just continued to grow more evil. There's hardly a stronger statement in all the Bible about the depravity of man and how bad it was. You could point to Romans chapters 1, chapter 3, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, for example. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Matthew 24, it says, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. A very profound phrase that I really enjoy sharing with people and my students in my class comes from Malcolm Muggridge. And it's such a profound statement. It says, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but it's at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. We can prove that man is sinful. All you gotta do is watch a little toddler as they grow up or watch what's going on in our world around us. People living out the intentions of their heart, the passions of who they are. The logical conclusion is they do things that go contrary to God, but yet, as Malcolm Muggridge says, they resist that. They say that's not true. Well, it says in the Bible here that God regretted creating man. The King James Version says repented. Repented or regretted doesn't mean that God changed his mind. In fact, Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. What he's saying here is that he put his, putting his thoughts in a language that we can understand. He decided, in other words, at this point, to, to allow uh, a longer time before the judgment would come. It says, regretted or repented means to be pained or grieved over man's sin. God's perspective was to destroy man and the world and maybe to start over. We don't know what his intention was, but look at verse 7 of chapter 6, that God is compassionate, and it means that he looks at man as pitiful because of how they reject and don't even give credence to the God who created them. Judgment was delayed 120 years after God said this. It shows how loving, how kind, how patient, how merciful he truly is. Think about it. Israel was delivered time and time again. The, men, the men's groups getting ready to study the book of Judges. And you see this cycle of sin and falling into sin and then somebody coming and oppressing them and then they cry out in repentance and then the next thing you know, God delivers them, sends a deliverer. Israel was delivered many, many, many times because God wanted them to last and he preserved a remnant. They were to go into the land and to drive out those that had rejected God to make the promised land their own. And we see Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. And while he was building the ark, he was preaching and warning people of God's 
coming judgment and the catastrophic flood that would come to destroy them. And can you imagine? They mocked him. They made fun of him. They had not even seen rain on the earth, and yet he was talking about this thing of rain coming, and they were just laughing at all that he said. In 2 Peter 2.5, we already read this verse, but I want to emphasize this point. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, calling him a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He was a preacher of righteousness. He wasn't just building the ark. He was out there proclaiming the judgment of God was coming to try to draw people in, to put their faith in God. And it only came down to eight people who truly believed. Can you imagine what he went through? Well, as we look at the world around us, we should not be surprised by man's sin. Man following his passions and his selfishness and his nature to its logical conclusion, are going to do wicked things. And we see that every day in the news. And we see it aware in the lives of people around us. It's more visible than ever, I think. Satan is laying, showing his cards all the time, not only with just unbelievers, but even with Christians as well. I've been amazed in the last week or so talking to different people on how Christians are becoming more and more complacent about coming to church as a result of COVID-19. I think Barnett did a study and one in three who went to church before who could go to church are now not going. And so we see that even Satan is undermining the believers. But you and I, we have a dual citizenship, it says in Philippians 3.20, and we are called to be salt and light, to push back the darkness, to restrain it until the rapture occurs and we're taken out and then the great tribulation begins. It surprised a neighborhood in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, that a 94-year-old elderly man who lived in a ranch house was arrested by federal authorities. And subsequently, he went to trial, and he was tried for being a German SS officer. They found out that while he was uh, working in prison camp, he would purposely injure and even starve to point of death some of the Jewish prisoners. No one knew this. He lived in this neighborhood for a long time. How did they find this out? Well, in 1950, the Allies went down and found a ship that had been sunken during World War II. And they raised it up and they got these cards that had information about the SS. But they were so badly deteriorated, they could not read what was said there. But through modern technology over time, they began to find out that Mr. Berger was an SS agent. And so he went to trial and he went to jail. Can you imagine? No one in that neighborhood had a clue. Devora Fish, the director of education for the Tennessee Holocaust Commission, said this, every time that somebody is brought to justice, even from 50 years ago or longer, that is a message to the world because we're not going to stop until everybody is brought to justice. Even if it's something you did years ago, it will catch up to you. Well, the neighbors didn't see it coming. They just saw an elderly man living in the United States who came from Germany. But what we cannot see, God sees. And on that, you and I can absolutely depend. He sees sin, and your sin will find you out. Well, the application here is that we should not be surprised at how sinful men, men and women live out their lives. We should not be surprised. It's the part of their nature. It's who they are. 
It's the reason they need to be redeemed. Like that song we sang about that we, that the shed blood of Christ was poured out on Calvary's cross to wash away those sins, to be transformed and to bring us into new life and to overcome those sins. Well, Noah, like Joseph in this book of Genesis, is considered a deliverer. So we're going to look at the brief story of Noah this week and, and the next week that we have an opportunity to get back to Genesis. It says in Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was the savior of mankind and he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was a man who is righteous. This is the first use of the word grace in the Bible. We see favor in our English standard version, but in the King James version, it actually reads grace. And the root of that can be translated either way. And by the way, righteous living means right living. It means doing what God commands us to do. And you and I, we have the ability to live right because we have God's righteousness within us when we receive Christ as Savior. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we see the great exchange that happens at the moment of conversion. It says, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. You see, apart from God and his Holy Spirit inhabiting our life, we can't fully live righteous lives that would honor and please God. But now we have the capability to be justified before God and live the way he wants us to because of the power of the resurrection and that righteousness that dwells within us. And Noah was a man who walks with God. Walks with God, just like Enoch. We don't know much about Enoch's life. We just have a few verses. But it says here as well that a man who walks with God. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Genesis 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was faced with the negativity of sin all around him, and yet he did not give in. He stood like Daniel did when he was taken away to Babylonia to be put in captivity. And we read in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 that he committed himself to the Lord, to not eat the king's food, to not worship the idols, but to stand alone. And Noah is doing the same thing. He walked with God means that he was complete and mature in his faith. Here's the application. We should be willing, you and I, to paddle against the stream of the culture, even if it means we have to stand alone. I mentioned earlier the complacency of, of Christians that are, is growing in our country and the dangers of that. And if we aren't willing to stand in the gap and stand alone and be grounded in the word of God, uh, we're going to easily get swept away. But the good news is that while we do stand alone, God will shield us from his wrath and judgment. So we see the last point today is the shield from judgment. The shield from judgment Look at verses 11 through 13 of Genesis 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. 
for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We see the pronouncement of judgment. God is pronouncing, he's proclaiming, he's warning. He's telling people it's going to come. It's going to happen. I'm going to wipe the earth clean. Notice the world in verses 11 and 12. He described how corrupt it was. It tells us there in verse 13, it was filled with violence. People fighting amongst themselves because of greed and selfishness. God declares that he would destroy this world that he so beautifully created. The only exceptions would be a select number of animals and Noah and his family, as we see in verse 18. So not only does he pronounce judgment, but he's got a plan. He's got a plan to preserve humanity. How is he going to preserve these animals and Noah and his family? Well, in verse 14, it says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're going to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. And which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Has anybody been to the ark in Kentucky? A few people, one or two. I invite you to go there and see it for yourself. I know there was a family who's going to go this summer, but because of COVID-19, they couldn't go. And there's the replica of the ark there in Kentucky. What's it all about? Well, the ark is laid out to know would be the vessel that God would use to preserve animals and mankind's life after destroying the world. It says in the Bible it was made of gopher wood. Now, we don't have gopher wood today. They think it was either cedar or cypress wood that was used. The ark was 450 feet long. To put that in perspective, that's a one and a half football fields. It was 75 feet wide. It was 45 feet high. And it had the, dis- the ability to displace 43,000 tons of cargo. God used that term ark, to not only here, but in Exodus 2, when it talks about the basket that baby Moses was put in, that was with pitch, and of course floated down the river as well. It's the same word. It was used to deliver baby Moses like it would Noah and his family and the animals. The space at the top of it was a light was for light, and it was about 18 inches from the roof for air and circulation. If you ever get the chance to go to the Ark Encounter, I encourage you to go through, and it's pretty interesting, the engineering ideas and thoughts of what may have transpired, how to feed the animals, how to dispose of waste, and all these things, the things that could have been used at that time in that culture were put into the Ark. But notice, there was a dramatic but. Look at verse 18, it says, but... And many times in the Bible, we see that word, but it's a big turn of events. God would make a promise to save Noah and his family. And we see in Genesis 8, 1, that God would be with and care for Noah and the animals all through the storm, all for that length of time. Look at Genesis 8, 1 on the screen. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And just as God was with Noah 
and the animals, God is with us in the midst of the storm. God is always continually caring for us. He doesn't leave us and say, well, I'll see you at the end of the storm. He walks through the storm with us. And he was there continually as they sacrificed on the ark, as they encountered conversations with him. God was there walking through life with them. And that's a great promise that we can hold on to. In verses 19 through 21, as we come to the end of this chapter, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Here you see a description of how to bring the animals in how to preserve life on earth when the judgment begins. And later on, we see in Leviticus 2 how God establishes the clean and the unclean animals. Anything that chews the cud and has a completely split hoof is ritually clean. But those animals that only chew the cud or only have cloven hoofs are unclean. The unclean animals are the hyrax or the coney. We don't see the hyrax anymore. The coney is a European animal. A camel, a rabbit, and pig, they are ritually unclean. And notice he's to bring two of each kind, and also seven pairs of each kind of animal for food and for sacrifice, for their provision and their worship on the ark. The last thing we see today is the persevering obedience of Noah. The persevering obedience of Noah. Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Would that be said of me when I pass from this life? That I did all that God commanded me to do. Would that be said of you? But that's the testimony of Noah. He did what God told him to do. Imagine the ridicule that Noah went through while building the ark, as I said. The neighbors mocking him, building something that's not even near water. It takes him about 120 years. You think he's out there pounding these nails and doing all these things and trying to build this ark and people are laughing at him. Only his family, it seemed, believed in him. How does one stay faithful in the face of all this negativity of being rejected, of seeing no evidence to trust God? What a man of commitment and persevering obedience Noah had. And I hope you and I, we can testify, we can learn from the life of Noah and persevere no matter how difficult life may become, how dark our world may be. The application here is that we should live as if there's God's hope and protection even in the fury of his wrath. He's got us in the middle of his hand in the midst of the storm. Even while he's carrying out his justice, carrying out his wrath, pouring out his anger on sin, he puts a bubble, a shield around them in this ark to preserve them. We can live in God's light as the world is growing darker and darker because we have a deep relationship and a commitment to the Lord. Our key thought here is that we must be willing, like Noah, to stand alone for Christ's righteousness in a sea of sinful behavior. We must be willing to stand alone and be counted and to step into the gap, to make a difference, to pull people out, as it says in Jude, of the, of the worldly things 
escaping the rotting flesh of it, as it says, but to save some, to pull people out of that. It's interesting that God will give up some of his most precious things for holiness and rest on the earth. Think about it. He created the world. Now he's going to be willing to utterly destroy it and utterly destroy the people he created because he wants to preserve holiness. There's only other, one other time in the Bible that we see that God was willing to give up almost everything for this idea of holiness when he crucified his son on the cross to give his one and only son because he wanted holiness to be here on this earth. I hope today that you have received Christ, that you avoid the judgment, the coming wrath of God. We don't have a flood coming our way, but one day we're all going to stand before God and give an answer for our lives. He's going to ask, why should I let you into heaven? And it isn't about good works. It isn't about the things we've done or the amount of money or wealth we've had. It'll all be about what did we do with Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us to accept the finished work of Christ, to realize we're sinners, to realize that we cannot get to heaven, but it's because of what he did for us and receiving that gift, we can have eternal life. Well, as we close today, I hope that you think about these questions this week. When you see the world of sin in full display around us, what are your thoughts related to God and his word? They're following the way of the world. The way of man ends in death, as it says in Proverbs. And we are to share the good news of Christ with them. Are we willing to stand the gap and be counted to live righteous lives in the midst of mounting depravity like Noah did? Do we have a sense that God shields us from the heartaches and the consequences of sin? I'm so thankful in many ways of the choices I made through life that I believe God directed me to do to avoid heartaches and consequences. And I have compassion and pity for those that are going through that. And the answer is the gospel of Christ that we can share with others. Let's bow for prayer. I encourage you today to look into your heart of hearts and think about Noah. He did all that God commanded him to do. That's a tall order. And I know we're not going to be perfect in that way in many, many times, but may that be the desire of our heart that when God speaks to us through his word, when he prompts us at the store to speak to someone and start a spiritual conversation, when God prompts us to go and confess we've done something wrong in a relationship and seek forgiveness, when we're prompted by the Spirit, may we be obedient as Noah was. May that be your commitment, my commitment today. Father, as we gather here today to worship you and re-energize our spiritual batteries for another week ahead as we go out and we connect with people that do not know you. Lord, may we stand in the gap. May we be the light. May we be willing to be obedient to do whatever you ask us to do, even if it's not comfortable, even if it's not popular, even if someone asks us to share an opinion that would go contrary to the group of people that we're in. 
may we be willing to do it and be reminded of Noah, who was willing to do all that you commanded him to do. May we learn from his life this week, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.